So tonight we're reading from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This, this took place to, to fulfill what was spoken through the, pro, through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your kingdom comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed, instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their coat cloaks on, on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from, the Nazareth, from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money chargers and the benches, and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wondrous, wonderful things that he did, and the other children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you, the Lord, have called forth your praise and he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night that was a mad reading thank you that was lovely uh, well, good evening everyone. I'd like to add my welcome to you tonight. If you don't know me, my name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here. And tonight is Palm Sunday. Now, we don't have any palms up the front of church, but for, for generations, Christians tended to celebrate this day by... Oh, actually, you know what we do? There's a palm over here. There's two of them. I draw your attention to the two plastic palms there. Actually, we've got... Sandy's pointed out two little palms over here. There's, there's palms everywhere, actually. Welcome to Palm Sunday. <laughs> this has got off to a great start traditionally this weekend has been a time where people would cut date palm fronds and put them up the front of church we don't have any of those here tonight but um it was to remember the triumphant entry of jesus into jerusalem and it's always struck me as quite ironic that this is taking place a week before the fact that jesus died so the same crowds that are cheering on jesus as he comes into Jerusalem, are the same crowd that jeers for his blood just seven days later. It's quite, uh, quite a powerful thought. But I want to dive into this tonight to encourage us, 
to encourage us that Jesus is not a victim when he's arrested and taken on trial on trumped up charges and put on a cross. Nothing could be further than the truth. In fact, what we see from this act is Jesus giving us insight into his true identity. Tonight we will see who Jesus is. As the crowds ask, who is this man? The answer is, he is the king. He is the king of the whole universe and he's coming to his city. Well, before we dive into the passage, I wanted to uh, go back in time a little bit. When I was a young bloke, I read a book called Lord of the Rings. Uh, I wasn't aware that it actually would turn into three books because Tolkien wrote a trilogy of books that were all bigger than the Bible, as my young mind thought, because they were all really big and chunky. But this was before Peter Jackson's um, pop cultural phenomena, Lord of the Rings, in the 2000s. This is when not many people used to read it. And a friend of mine at school, when I was 13 or 14, said, you've got to read this, it'll change your life. I was a bit suspect, but I went, I'll give it a go. I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. It was just such an amazing read. J.R. Tolkien writes a uh, mythical um, story about some hobbits that come from the Shire. Does that sound familiar to some of us who live in the Sutherland Shire? I wear that badge of Hobbit of the Shire with a great deal of pride. The hobbits in the Shire were the most unassuming and humble creatures and no one would have suspected that they would have anything grand to contribute to history. But in Tolkien's history of Middle-earth, the hobbits would be central in the story. They uh, come across a ring, I won't bore you, probably most of you know the story, but they come across a ring, a magical ring, and they have to transport that ring to the elves. And as they're on their way to the elves, they are attacked by evil forces. But they find themselves, even before they've even left the Shire, on the run, and they hide out in this inn in a town called Bree. Uh, no relation to Brewarrina, that we also call Bree. Uh, unlike Brewarrina, which is 10 hours away, Bree was just on the edge of the Shire, which I sometimes wish... Warren was on the edge of the Shire when I'm driving 10 hours to get to be with my friends. However, when they go into the inn, it's a very scary place and they're surrounded by huge people. They're a race of small people and they're surrounded by threatening people of uh, human size. But one of those humans is a shadowy figure who's sitting in the corner smoking a pipe. His name's Strider. And they're warned to stay away from Strider because no one really knows who he is. But all of a sudden... Uh, basically a huge climax of the first book is that the uh, inn is attacked by these shadowy forces and it actually turns out that this man Strider had been sent to help the hobbits and so he gathers them up, bundles them up and carries them off into the wilderness and towards Rivendell which is the home of the elves and the reason I'm telling you this story is there's a fantastic turn and twist when they get to Rivendell because the elves tell the hobbits that this man Strider has actually got a secret identity his secret identity is Aragorn, the king of the humans. And even though he's been living as a ranger all his life in the woods, in the backwaters, he actually comes forward at this moment, in this time in history, for this time and place, to help destroy this sinister ring of power that the hobbits have so that the evil forces can be defeated. At the end of the book, uh, which is called, the last book is called The Return of the King, I think, Elijah, have I got that right? Where's Elijah? Is that right, Elijah? Got another fellow Lord of the Rings fan over there. The return of the king, Aragorn is presented at Gondor as the magnificent king of victory. And so he's gone from being this outlier to the king. And what's interesting is that as I grew older, I found out that the author of that story is actually a Christian, that Tolkien was a very sincere Catholic Christian. And 
it made a lot of sense after I found that out because as I was reading this story in Lord of the Rings, I found myself incredibly attracted to this character of Aragorn and so thinking the whole time, he's a Christ-like figure. This Aragorn has the one that we've been waiting for to come and fix up everything that's broken. And he uses the humility of the hobbits to overthrow the evil power of the enemy. Well, the reason that's such a powerful story for us to be thinking about tonight is I want you to have that in your mind as you look at the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, a very familiar story. As I've said, many churches have celebrated this over the years with all sorts of palm leaves and other assorted knickknacks. And it can become just, oh yeah, that's Palm Sunday. Does Christianity get like that for you sometimes? Yeah, I've heard that story. Well, the reason I wanted to connect it with Lord of the Rings tonight is I wanted to encourage you to take a look at it from a different angle. And I'm going to try and see if we can look at this from the similar angle that Tolkien gave us with Aragorn, who, as Strider, was this person who no one even knew existed and who turned out to be the most important human being in the story. Well, here we see uh, in this story, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, who has been living most of his ministry, other than a few short, short stops at Jerusalem, in the backwaters of the people uh, in, in the north, He's now come to the fore and we pick up the story here in Matthew 21 as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. To understand the weight of this, we need to understand what Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is the city of David. It's the city that was established as the home of the temple. The first and second temple were built in this city and this is the city that God decided he would dwell amongst his people with. His house is in this city. And yes, while David did build um, this uh, beautiful uh, palace to himself, when he said to God, it's not right that I live in a palace, you should have a palace too. You're just living in a tent because he was still living in the tent. Well, he was abiding in the tent of the tabernacles, which is the Ten Commandments were brought out of Egypt in. David felt really bad about that. And as he prayed to God, he said to God, I should build you a temple. And he says, no, no, that'll be for your son. And so Solomon actually built one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was so magnificent and beautiful that it would be similar for us to approach the most modern city of the world with the most beautiful high-rise towers, with the best train systems. With it. it was one of actually the most 20 most amazing pieces of architecture in the Roman world by the time even before Jesus. The second temple that was built by Herod was even more magnificent. And so this temple in this city, Jerusalem, is on the top of this mountain where the city of God is, where the city of David is. And now Jesus is coming from Galilee and he's coming to Jerusalem not for a visit but for a purpose. We pick up the story, as I said in verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and they will send them right away. Interestingly, this place, Bethage, is on the outermost limit of Jerusalem. It was considered to be part of Jerusalem actually and it was like an outer suburb of Jerusalem, kind of like Grace Point is an outer suburb of Sydney, kind of similar but just a little bit less walking distance to the CBD. But Bethage is just next to Bethany, where so many of Jesus' friends lived. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the one who would be raised from the dead by Jesus, the very famous story of Lazarus. 
So Jesus has a place to stay in Bethany with his friends, but he says to the disciples, go to Bethage, and I want you to actually go there to get the donkeys. Now, interestingly, the name Bethage, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Bethage, Bethage, whatever. Jai, what do you reckon? Got any thoughts? He's, he's shrugging as well. I think that's close enough. Bethage, let's, call, let's go with that. Apparently, that means the house of the unripe, fib, unripe figs. That was a mouthful. The house of the unripe figs. Now, that's going to be important for us later in the story, so I just want you to remember that as we go through this story. But at this point, Jesus sends his disciples on an errand to get these two donkeys. Um, Both Mark and Luke refer to the fact that Jesus wants to get a colt, a young donkey, but here in Matthew we also see that uh, there are two donkeys, actually, but Jesus is going to ride one of them. Anyway, he says to the disciples, when you go to get the donkeys, they're going to be there in the city because Jesus knows they're there, all in the suburb. And I want you to untie them and just bring them to me. But if anybody stops you, I want you to say, the Lord has need of them. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. And again, it's another important phrase for us to think through tonight. What does Jesus mean when he says the Lord has need of them? Well, it could be a few things. The Lord could be a meaning for the owner of the donkeys needs them. The word was used in that sort of context back in the day. The Lord or the owner of these donkeys needs them. It could be the Lord God needs these donkeys which is also a possible translation and interestingly it could also refer to Jesus himself he could be saying the Lord I want the donkeys tell them to get the donkeys well it actually could also be one last thing it could actually be almost like a password a pre-arranged password that Jesus has given to the owners of those donkeys and the reason I like that theory is because I think there's a lot of thought that's gone into this from Jesus He has already planned out what he's going to do as he arrives in Jerusalem, the capital city of God. He is going into the capital of city with these two animals that he's chosen. And because Jesus is a regular visitor to Bethany and has actually been uh, in this area quite a bit, there are some scholars that think that Jesus himself might have even told the owners of these donkeys, one day I'm going to come back for these, I'll need them for a purpose. So I actually like that idea. Because I like the idea that Jesus has actually planned all this and prepared it for us because what we see in that little idea is that Jesus is planning and preparing something much bigger. And not only has he prepared something much bigger for that day, he's also planning something for you and I that's much bigger. Have you ever thought about your life like that? That Jesus is preparing things for you. He says that actually when he says in John 17, I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you in my father's house have you ever connected those two ideas well how am i going to get to jesus father's house if the king doesn't actually get me there and what we're going to see here is that this king jesus like aragorn comes out of obscurity into notoriety and he's going to do it in a very different way that would be expected now jesus is the king of the universe. He is the son of David and he has been telling his disciples throughout Matthew that he is actually the coming Messiah. They don't understand that though. And just before this story was told in Matthew 20, we're actually shown that Jesus does a miracle to heal a blind person. And that's meant to prepare us for this moment because really everyone's still a little bit blind to who Jesus is. So when Jesus cures the blindness of the blind man, he's actually preparing us to see that He's like Aragorn going to come out and be revealed to those who are blind to who he is. So here we've got um, Matthew who is absolutely awesome at helping us to understand how the prophecies of the Old Testament 
prepare us for this shows us that not only did Jesus prepare the donkeys, but he'd already prepared before he was even born on earth for this moment because he, through the Holy Spirit, has inspired the prophet Zechariah and the prophet Isaiah to prophesy what's going to happen in the next coming days. You see, in Matthew 21, verse 5, this is what's repeated. There's a prophecy that a king is going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the city of God. So daughter of Zion, the people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, your king is coming. Now when a king approaches, how do you expect that to look like? Usually with a great deal of pomp and pageantry. Now in a few uh, weeks time, KC3 is going to become our new king. Now, you may or may not be into English kings and queens, but at the moment, our country still is recognising King Charles as the legitimate king of Australia. Now, that may or may not change in the future. You may or may not like that reality, but it's a reality. And when a king is coronated, they put on the biggest party they can imagine with the most amount of gold chariots and soldiers with red coats on and flags and trumpets and choirs of people singing and people laying hands on people and dropping oil on people's heads. And it's a whole big, 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 big thing. So much so that billions of people around the world are expected to watch this. How does the king of Israel come into his city? Jesus comes in not on a big white horse like a conquering Roman commander who's coming in to destroy the Romans and kick them out of his city because they indeed are occupying the city. No, he's coming on a donkey. Zechariah in 9.9 actually predicted this. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, victorious and righteous, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not even a donkey, but the colt of a donkey. Isaiah 62.11, the prophet Isaiah also predicts this. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. See, daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. That's a funny way of saying he's coming to save you. Your king is coming to save you. But the crowds that meet Jesus in Matthew 21 misunderstand the meaning of saviour, being saved. In verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road there's where we get the palm Sunday. people cutting down date palm trees putting them on the ground kind of like an ancient red carpet that's kind of the idea of this the king's coming in let's lay down this beautiful carpet for him to come down into the city on the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted hosanna to the son of david blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So you get the crowds and you get the people in the city. The crowds have actually been swelling and following Jesus as he's been involved in his ministry through all the ups and downs. And they're coming into the city with Jesus, declaring him as the conquering Messiah. Now, politically, that would have been incredibly uh, dangerous. Now, you, you probably picked up that sometimes uh, in our everyday lives, we've got to be careful what we say as Christian people. Sometimes we are thoughtful and we need to be careful as we talk. And the same was true in the time of Jesus, because the disciples of Jesus had been warned by Jesus himself that he was going to be killed. 
Three times he warned them that he was going to be killed. So they're a little bit on edge. So they've kind of got this mixed emotion of, oh man, the city of Jerusalem is rising up to welcome Jesus, but we also have this prophecy of death. So I can imagine the disciples feeling a little bit, a little bit torn. What's going to happen? But anyway, the, the question is the most important thing for tonight. Who is this Jesus? The city calls out. Who is this? And the crowd answers, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In other words, it's like the coming of Aragorn to Gondor. When he's living in Bree and in Mirkwood and in Rivendale, no one knows who Strider is. He's this secretive ranger who lives in amongst the wilderness. But now Aragorn is presented to the whole city as the king and they all celebrate. Well, this is what's happening here. Jesus is recognised as the king. He's come to his city. He is the son of David. This is his city. And I think this is something I missed when I was a young Christian. I used to think Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. How are they going to appreciate him? Like if I went into the middle of the CBD and said, hi everyone, how are you going? It's, not, it's kind of my city because I'm a Sydney cider, but it's not my city. Do you get what I'm saying? I used to think a similar thing. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Sure, he's a Jew. He's coming into his city. But this is different. This is not like me going into Martin Place. This is like me turning a key on my house and opening the front door and walking in and being greeted by my dog. Every time I come in, my dog, little Cavoodle, by the name of Abbey Road, comes running up to me and it's almost like she hasn't seen me for months. She's so ecstatic. If she could cut down a few palm branches, she would. So what we see in this enthusiasm is there is some recognition going on here amongst people that this is the king. This is actually not just our king, it's the king. It is God himself coming to his city. In Matthew 27, 12 to 14, we go on and read the story though, that there are some there that have the opposite reaction. He was accused by the chief priests and the elders and he gave no answer. This is, um, by the way, at his trial. Let, let's skip ahead, right, to next weekend. This, this, is Friday, this is Thursday night. This is what happened on, in our time. We're, on Saturday, let's pretend we're Sunday, we're going to Thursday night. When the chief priests, when they put him on trial, they accused him and he gave no answer. When Pilate asked him, do you hear the testimony they bring against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. See, this is the meekness of the king who comes into the city on a cult. He's not come in with a sword to take over his city. He's come in meekly and then been arrested by his city five days later. And accused by the chief priests. How did that happen when everyone's cheering for him on Palm Sunday? Let's go back to Matthew 21, 15 to 16. But when the chief priests in Matthew 21, the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did. And watch this. This is absolutely shocking. When the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and that the children were shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you remember when Jesus said, let the little children come to me? Remember he said that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless it's like a child? What is he trying to say there? Well, when we're a child and we're standing at the lights and mum or dad or our carer grabs our hand and says, come on, let's go across the road, we walk across the road. 
When mum or dad says, or our carer says, no, 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 go, careful, careful, don't touch that, it's hot, we tend to not touch it. When mum and dad tuck us in at night, or our carer tuck us in at night, and kiss us on the forehead and say, have a nice sleep. It's not like this in every family, but the idea that God has for family is that parents are there to care for their kids, and it's absolutely dreadful when parents don't do that. We can leave that for another time. And if that has been some of your experience, I want to say today, please feel free to come and talk to any of us if any of this brings up anything for you. But God's plan for parents and children and carers and children is for them to feel safe and to be cared for and looked after. And Jesus is saying the wonderful thing is that children who are cared for actually respond in kind. And isn't it delightful that in the story that Matthew writes, it's the children who say who Jesus is with accuracy. But these powerful leaders of the community, the chief priests priests and the teachers of the law, hate him and want to kill him. This is what goes on in verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? My encouragement for us tonight, if we want to know who Jesus really is, we need to be like a child. We need to, sure, have answers to our questions. Yes, we need to make sure that we have, you know, a faith that has integrity, that we, you know, if we have doubts, we need to work them through. All of those things are part of the Christian life. But there comes a time in every Christian's life where we just need to surrender to the authority and the care of our Heavenly Father and say, you know what, God, I, I trust you. The great um, evangelist, Billy Graham, lived in a time where people used to question their faith a lot. And the big issue back in the time of Billy Graham in the 1930s was, was the Bible trustworthy? And Christians were debating that all the time. And Billy Graham went to Bible college and they were debating whether the Bible was trustworthy. Could you believe it or was it just a myth? And he had all these crazy questions running around in his head every day. And one day he apparently, this is the story, he walks out into the night, sits on a rock and says to God, I don't care if this is right or wrong, I choose to believe it. And it changed his life. Because he, he, it was true. And he said in later life, nothing I've ever read in the Bible I've ever found to be faulty, ever. But what he needed to do at one point is make a decision like a child to accept and be looked after by God. But not the political leaders, no. They are going to fight against the coming of the king. Have you thought it was strange that when he goes into the city, he actually goes to the temple and then he casts out all the people in the temple? You know that great story of Jesus going to the temple and chasing out all the robbers and the people who were you know, overcharging people for birds to sacrifice and stuff? You know when Jesus did that in the, in the movies, you know, Jesus runs into a room with 20 or 30 people with a whip and goes, get out of the room. And everyone's like, oh, okay, and they go out of the room. <laughs> but that's not what it would have been like. The day that Jesus went into the temple was the day he came into the city as a conquering Messiah. The crowds followed him into the temple and when he was in the temple, there would have been 15,000 people there according to what the theologians think. Imagine Jesus going in amongst 15 thousand people it would be like me going down to shark park and standing in the middle of the oval and say get out of my father's house and instead of everybody laughing at me imagine if everyone fled in terror 
This is what happens when Jesus goes to the temple because why? He's put his key in the door and opened the door of his own house and when the king returns to his house and finds the chief priests and the teachers of the law robbing his people and turning his house of prayer into a house of robbers, he says, get out of my house and they flee because they hear the judgment of God. It's the voice of God telling them to get out of the temple. It's absolutely amazing. But even despite Jesus' authority, Still, the chief priests don't listen. They are not like the children and they don't accept who Jesus is. Now, this is why in Matthew 21, 18 to 19, we see this little story of Jesus cursing a fig tree. You see, all these stories in this little narrative are all connected. You need to read them all as one big story. The blind people are healed, then Jesus reveals who he is by coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. A meek ruler, not one who's coming to take it by force. He goes into his temple, into his house, and he drives out the people who are leading the people astray to false worship. And now, the next day, early in the morning in verse 18, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Now, they didn't have Macca's drive through back in the time of Jesus. I know that's hard to believe. Fig, fig trees fig trees were pretty much the ancient equivalent of a drive through at Macca's. They're actually planted by the people along the sides of roads so that travellers could eat as they went along. Jesus sees this fig tree by the road. He goes up to it to get some figs and he finds leaves. And then he says to it, may you never bear fruit again and immediately the tree withers and dies. Now, some people use this as an example of Jesus losing his temper. But he doesn't lose his temper. He just told the tree to die and it did. It was a living parable. You see, he's walking back to Bethany and Bethany is up the hill from Jerusalem. You go back down through the Mount of Olives, down a valley, up back into Jerusalem from Bethany. From the road, you can see Jerusalem. And what did we say was on top of Jerusalem? One of the most 20 beautiful buildings in the ancient world. From a distance, the Jewish people must have appeared to any outsider as a people who took their faith really seriously and are really serious about being God's people. But do you know what that temple represents? Because we went into the temple with Jesus. Rather than finding people worshipping God as God wanted them to, there was a den of robbers in the temple. And Jesus drove them out of the house. And then he finds the fig tree, and the fig tree in Jewish literature is a symbol of unfaithfulness. A fig tree without fruit is a symbol of unfaithfulness. And Jesus curses the fig tree... As a judge and a prophet, Jesus curses the fig tree to say that one day I am actually going to take this mountain and I'm going to throw it into the sea. This mountain here, this Jerusalem, one day will be thrown into the sea. Now in verse 20, 22, this is what happens. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, the disciples were amazed and they said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus replied, doesn't tell them by the way, notice that. <laughs> they said, how'd you do that? He doesn't tell them, he just says what it means. Because it's more important than how did he do it. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not have doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe this, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Strange. It's weird. What's Jesus talking about? Well, in Mark 11, Mark says the same thing. He tells the same story, but he gives a bit of a similar story with a bit more detail. Uh, in Mark 11:22 to 25, 
This is what's, what happens. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, does not doubt in their heart but believes what I have said will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe and you'll receive it and it'll be yours. But watch, look, look what's added here in verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven will forgive you for your sins. Is it helping? Or is it making it more confusing? Let me tell you what's happening here. When I was a young man, I used to think that if I had enough faith, I could pray that the... I've told you this before in this room. You've probably heard this from me before. But when I was young, probably around the same time I was reading Lord of the Rings for the first time, I was told that if I had enough faith and I could say to the mountains, throw yourself into the sea, and I had enough faith, then it would be done. And 13-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old Stuart, for some reason, goes out onto his back balcony looks up to the heavens and says, God, I pray that you'll throw the blue mountains into the sea. Now, I had no thought about what I was saying. Thank goodness God didn't do that because a lot of people live in the blue mountains. And even though that would have been terrific for me as a young man to see the mountains go over my head and into the ocean, it would have, I was looking for a proof of God, really. It was my Billy Graham moment. But instead of just deciding to trust God as a, as a child, I wanted him to prove himself to me. Prove to me you can do what you say because in the Bible you said if I have enough faith you'll throw the blue mountains into the sea. But what I missed is Jesus doesn't say throw any mountain into any sea. He says this mountain into this sea. What Jesus is saying is God is going to come one day back to Jerusalem and my judgment in the temple by casting out all the robbers is a portent is of the future judgment of God, which will be once and for all on the people of Israel. If they do not repent, the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law, they will be destroyed. And as he says that, what he's saying is, you need to think about your own life, not just think about how evil they are. Because again, in our culture, like in their day, we're used to saying things like this. I don't like church because people judge me. People are such hypocrites at church. They don't let me be who I want to be. You know, that's how we think about the world. But Jesus turns that upside down and he says, if you want me to be your king, you need to look inside your own heart and actually ask yourself the question, as God is throwing that mountain into the sea, might he throw me with it? Could I actually be evil enough to be judged as well? God wants us to be humble. Jesus wants us to be humble. And he makes it clear in verse 25 here, and that's why I read the Mark passage, because he says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. Jesus has already said in parables earlier in the story that if you are forgiven, you should forgive others as a sign that you actually understand that you are following a king who forgives. If you follow a king who forgives you, you should forgive others. And it's not just about forgiveness, is it? It's we should live for God if he has called on us to be following him. But unfortunately, many Christians throughout the centuries, and me included, have tried to define to God what being a Christian looks like. And the danger is, if I say to God, this is how I think being a Christian should be, then God might actually say to me, that doesn't line up with what I think, Stu. <laughs> This is really humbling because Jesus curses the fig tree because unless we are saved by the king, we'll be judged by the king. That's what he's saying. And it's not being told tonight to scare us. It's actually, I'm telling you this tonight to invite you to consider this. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 to 22, earlier in the story, two chapters earlier, in fact, Jesus says this, 
When two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now here we see two things to finish. Jesus says that every time we gather in his name, he's here with us. And when he gathers with us, he calls on us to seek forgiveness and to forgive. To repent of our sin and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I sin against you. I do things that I know you don't like. I am sorry. And then because I am sorry and I'm forgiven, I will forgive others the way you've forgiven me. Peter found that quite confronting. But see what he says here. He gives us this beautiful phrase in verse 20, for when two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. He has laid that down as a principle for all time. Now, of course, Jesus is with them. They would have been thinking, this is strange. Why are you saying this? It's like me saying to you today, when Saw Revival Church gathers on a Saturday night, Stuart will be there. Of course he is. It's always there. Can't get rid of him. It's been coming along for 30 years. Why did we end up paying that guy anyway to do this? <laughs> All these questions come across our minds. But this is different, isn't it? Because the king was with his disciples. And he was saying, I am here in the midst of you, but whenever two or three of my followers gather, I will be with them like I am with you. So I want to say that the story in the Bible tonight is talking to us about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, but it's also equally talking about Jesus coming to the factory. He's here tonight. What does he find when he walks in this door? Now, this is not the temple because Jesus doesn't dwell in a house anymore. He dwells in our hearts. But that makes it even sharper. When he comes into this room and, in fact, he comes to you and looks into your heart, what does he find? Does he find repentance and forgiveness and a willingness to forgive others? Is Jesus your king? When Jesus entered the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the whole crowd said, who is this? But we don't have to ask that question because we know who he is. He is your king. What are you going to do tonight if he comes up to you and asks you to make an account for the fruit in your fig tree? Do you look at a distance like the temple? Do you look at a distance like you're a really godly person? Do you, on Saturday night and Sunday morning or whenever you go to church, do you look like the you know, cookie-cutter Christian? But do you know that during the week when no one's watching you, you're actually like a fig tree with no fruit? That your heart is full of robbers and thieves? I feel like that sometimes. In Revelation 3.20, this is what Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. As Jesus knocked on the door of Jerusalem, he was welcomed. But when he was welcomed and he revealed their sin to them, the children accepted him, but the religious leaders rejected him. And five days later, they had him killed. When he comes to the factory tonight and he knocks on the door of your heart and you open the door, I encourage you to say, hi, Jesus. I'm so sorry that I've done things to hurt you. Please forgive me. But please come in. Come in and eat with me and be with me. So my encouragement to you tonight is to encourage. But as in so many passages in the Bible, there is encouragement and warning. 
that if we place ourselves above the authority of the king and tell him how we should lead our life, we're in danger of being like the chief priests and the teachers of the law whose future is destruction. The fig tree that looks leafy but has no fruit. But if we are like the children tonight and Jesus knocks on the door, we open the door because we love him and we trust him and we welcome him in. And I'm going to invite you to do that tonight as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story tonight. May we not be like the chief priests and the leaders of the law. May we not be like the people who executed Jesus five days after they were welcoming him into the city. Help us be like the children in this story, Lord God, who accept you and trust you. Lord God, please help us to admit our sin and to rejoice in our forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that our lives will be lived to your glory instead of compromising. And tonight, Lord God, I pray that if there's anything in our lives that are impeding our following of you, that you would come into our hearts and you would show us the things that do not please you so that we might throw them out the door as you come in the door. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.